Vitaly Katzenelson was born in Warmansk, Russia, and immigrated to the United States with his family in 1991. He's the author of Soul in the Game, The Art of a Meaningful Life. He's the CEO of Denver-based value investment firm, IMA. Vitaly has also written two books on investing. Forbes magazine called him the new Benjamin Graham, and he's written for Financial Times, Barron's, Institutional Investor, and Foreign Policy. Vitaly lives in Denver with his wife and three children, where he loves to read, listen to classical music, play chess, and write about life, investing, and music. Vitaly Katzenelson, welcome to The Creative Process. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Really excited. So we've been enjoying Soul in the Game, which is a little, you know, from a value investor, it's a surprising book. You've been in America now for over 30 years. It brings in family. It brings in stoicism, classical music, of course, some perspectives on investing, but really it's a very engaging book. Why was it now a time to, to write Soul in the Game? Oh, it has nothing to do with the time itself. It has to do with me. In a sense, I got to the point of my life where I am comfortable enough to share these insights. I'm comfortable enough where, and I probably have a lot more self-awareness for two reasons, because I've been writing for so long and the writing provides self-awareness. But I think kids in general make you appreciate things a lot more. And you combine that together that kind of helped me to accelerate the process and allowed me to kind of get, gave me the courage to write that. So it's not about the time outside, it's time with, you know, within me. And writing really helps you understand your life on so many levels. I believe you're going to read a, a passage from Soul in the Game. So number one, the book is d- dedicated to my kids. If someone had suggested a decade ago that I would write a book that had nothing to do with value investing, I would have laughed. I thought of myself as an investor who thinks through writing, not a writer. I prefer to leave this stuff to professionals, the Dostoevskys, the Kemingways, and stick to what I knew best, value investing. However, over the years, I brought life stories about my childhood, my kids, and classical music, supporting actors, often as analogies, onto the main stage of my writing about investing. Kids change you the realization of your mortality changes you and writing changes you before these life stories went into grow out of their supporting roles into lead roles. Just tell us a little bit about the organization process. It's not directly linear. We get to follow your life from Russia. We get to know your family. Tell us how it came together. So I started writing in 2004 and I wrote about subjects very familiar to me, which was value investing. And I say this, this is very important to understand. When you create something, you need to have self-confidence. And I felt I had self-confidence. I had enough, well, I had pedigree. So I had a two finance degrees. I had a CFA designation and I was doing investing for a living. So I felt that gave me the right to write about investing. So I've been writing about investing for a long, long time. But over time, it's like when you do something for a long time, it gets a little bit mundane. you discover less and less every time you write. So I started to write, as I just mentioned, about my kids, 
about my life. And in the beginning, those were just small passages that I used either to tell a story, a lot of times about value investing, or sometimes I would write articles for Financial Times. But a lot of people who I wanted to read the articles would not subscribe to Financial Times. So I ended up having an email list. I would send out the article for Financial Times. I would write a few paragraphs about my life. And then at the end of the article, I would write about a classical music composer that I've been listening to at that point in time and share some classical music. And over time, I would get emails from people, complete strangers that have been reading my articles, who say, Vitaly, it's very strange, but I came to your articles for investment lessons, but I'm really staying for life lessons and classical music. And that was a shock to me. And so what's important, over time, it gave me confidence to actually write about topics outside of value investing. And over time, they weren't just kind of a few paragraphs about life. They actually started to write articles about life. And so now when you read my essays, 50% of them about stock market or economy or whatever, another 50% of them about life. And then in August 2020, in the middle of pandemic, I was writing about Tchaikovsky. And I was going to share his sextet he wrote for strings. and. As I was researching it, I realized the Tchaikovsky journey of writing that piece was so painful. And I was learning more and more about this. I realized actually composing that piece, the pain that he went through is not that much different than the pain any creative person goes through when they create something. As a writer, I experienced similar pain when I write, or as an investor as well. So I kind of ended up writing an essay, really not about classical music, but about creativity. And when I finished it and I was rereading it, I realized if somebody wants to start writing or writing and struggling, if they read that essay, it's going to help them. And then I had another realization over the years, I've written so many essays like that on different parts of life. So I should take them and put them into a book and publish it. Now, this is where it gets more interesting. So before that, I wrote two investment books. So having a published book did not really matter to me. I just wanted to get it out. So I wasn't even looking for a publisher. I was going to self-publish it. And then literally two weeks later, I get an email from Herman House, which is a publisher in the UK. And they said, Vitaly, you were working on the book. How's it going? Well, they're referring to investment book that I know I finished. And I said, listen, that investment book, it's kind of nice right now, but this is what I'm working on. And I sent them basically a Word document of all the essays I was going to publish. And I expected very polite British, Vitaly, this is a great idea. Good luck. You know, kind of this kind of thing. They came back to me and said, this is a great idea. Let's do it. So at that point, I was in shock because I was thinking there must be something wrong with them. I talked to two of my friends who published books with Herman House just to make sure that this is like a legitimate publisher. And my friends gave me very positive feedback. So that's how this book came about, just completely random. And we should say this completely random book, which has also the order and kind of beautiful harmonies of your life has also been endorsed by some pretty amazing people who've really appreciate Carl Bernstein, Donald Robertson, Nassim Talib, General Stanley McChrystal, and so many others. I mean, it's, just, it's quite a variety of people who have been moved by this. It's kind of hard to match them all together like at a dinner party, but all, they all appreciated your book. That is a, such a great point, actually. But you know what unites them? That people and their parents and they could all relate to the message of the book. 
And I think that's really what really brings them together. So what is a meaningful life? I need to have great relationships with people like my, my family, my friends. I need to be net positive to society. And I feel like this book, my writing and this book is me going towards the direction. But also I find that I need to have creativity. And because the creativity, that's what really recharges my battery. I can't wait to wake up because I'm going to write. And then I can't wait to come to work because I get to learn. Having creativity in my life being extremely, extremely important to me. So those things need to be present for me. Definitely. Creativity unlocks the imagination. I think it's what connects us to any enterprise. If we don't have that, if we don't have the imagination, again, it's like we have lost that sense. I want to stay on the book, but I was just curious, this deep compassion you have, the love of art and of music and the ability to see the story, because I know nothing about investing, right? I know nothing about understanding spreadsheets or understanding those kind of opportunities, really. But I think that your ability as a writer or to understand the stories or like the people behind the pixels or this kind of thing, mm. do you feel that helps you as an investor? Oh, absolutely. So as a writer, you have to create analogies. Like because a story is basically an analogy, right? You're trying to communicate something through a story, which is a lot of times an analogy. And as an investor, analogies or what an investment call mental models are incredibly important because it allows you to basically compress something that's very complex into something so much simpler. And it brings lessons from one discipline to another. So in fact, I would argue as an individual, writing is probably one of the most important things that has happened to me. It's helped me tremendously as a human being in general and as an investor as well. And as you reflect on your life, just walk us through a little bit because it's an unconventional path to becoming an investor. Just tell us in what it was like arriving in America and these. So, okay. So I was born in Murmansk, Russia. So just to picture it, if you look at the map of Russia, you look on the left and you go up. And when you go up, keep going up. Once you pass Arctic Circle, go up a little bit above that. That's where Murmansk is. And Murmansk was basically, it's a very important city strategically from Russia. It was especially important during World War II because of the Gulf Stream. That is the only port in Russia that, that does not freeze in the wintertime. That's how Americans sent supplies to Russia during World War II. And it's also a home for Russian the Navy fleet. So, you know, the, when you watch the movie The Hunt for the Red October, the Red October fictionally was stationed in Murmansk. Actually, it's, in all honesty, the Navy base is actually not in Murmansk. It's in a small town outside of Murmansk called Severomorsk. Anyway, so I grew up in this, basically it's a fisherman town. When I say fisherman, a commercial fisherman. So you have, it's a huge port. And uh, what's very interesting about it, it's so up far north, there's very little sunlight in the wintertime. You wake up in the morning and it's still dark outside. Somewhere, sometime at noon, the sun would come out for a few minutes and I would be in the classroom. And so I would miss that sun. And then I would walk home in complete darkness again. So there were a few months a year where there was like, I basically did not see any sun. And what's interesting about it is that, remember I grew up in a Soviet Russia, not just Russia, but Soviet Russia. So there was very little capitalism then. So no free market. So there is no vegetation in Murmansk, very little sunlight. So how do you get your vitamins? Well, we had to eat for lunch. They would give us a few spoons of fish fat. And that was the source of a vitamin D. And in, in October, 
my parents would pickle jars and jars of cabbage. That was another source of vitamins. When we grew up in America and we go to a store and we get tomatoes and cucumbers every day of the year, we kind of take it for granted. Well, I don't because I probably ate cucumbers and tomatoes maybe a few months a year. Yeah. That just speaks to your resilience. And then it shows, I don't know if it's like hardening, but it makes you appreciate. A friend of mine is from Yakuts, and she told me that her mother would tell her, you know, if they were out in the street and she wanted to cry, don't cry, your eyes could freeze shut. It's a big adjustment. Absolutely. So I'm going to get off topic a little bit. But first of all, when I lived in Russia, I thought that was a normal life. So if I moved if I was transported back 30 years today, I would be struggling because of the contrast, because I got used to seeing fruits and vegetables at the grocery store all the time. But when I was growing up there, I thought this is normal life. That's how things are supposed to be. But what's interesting about this, I'm thankful that I went through that because it, that makes me appreciate what I have a lot more because I see the contrast between what I had as a child and what I have today. But there's something else. Speaking of contrasts, imagine this. So I moved from Murmansk to Denver. And Denver is a place where I thought you have 300 plus days of sunlight a year. So imagine how much I appreciate light today. Because if I moved from a Santa Fe to Denver, probably would not appreciate light as much. If I moved from Seattle to Denver, probably maybe a little bit more. But going from one of the places where there is almost no sunlight for months to you know, sunlight every day, I appreciate that sunlight so much more. So this contrast is very valuable. And I would argue that this is why a lot of times when you have immigrants come to the United States and immigrants come from countries that are like from Eastern Europe or from Africa or from others, that contrast becomes an incredible driving force. This is why you have a lot more innovation coming from immigrants in this country. Yes. And you've written both in investment, as you say, accepting the pain, as you said, in creativity. And it also seems like an advantage on the an investment point of view that you could understand going without, because we're dealing with it, a transition period to make the great energy transition or this, the vast societal changes that need to take place. I mean, so how does that inform you as an investor, knowing kind of deprivation and doing it without and how you know, where those opportunities are in investment. Yeah, no, I think so. They, I think they very important for, if you're investing, it's very important to understand that there will be time when you're going to experience pain. And I would argue if you're doing anything creative, you should prepare yourself that there will be time when you, it's going to be painful. And I'll tell you this, and I'm going to switch to writing a little bit. There are times where I, like I write two hours a day, every single day. And there are times where I show up and I write for weeks and I have nothing to show for it. And I kind of get used to it that I understand that this is part of the process and it's less painful to me now than it used to be in the past when I have nothing to show for it. But it's still unpleasant. I wrote three books. And my first book was Active Value Investing, which is like 280 pages, 75 charts and tables. It's written kind of for people like me. And then John Wiley and Sons came to me and said, why don't you take your first book and rewrite it for your neighborhood dentist? In other words, instead of same message, same concepts, but explain it to somebody who is a smart person, but may not be a professional. 
So now it's a different type of writing. And I remember vividly, there was a few days where I was completely devastated because I struggled with a few chapters and it was an agony. It was like, it felt like a physical pain. And then I got through that. So anybody who's doing anything creative should be kind of prepared that pain, it's more of a feature. And the reason it's a feature because pain induces more creativity. And pain is like if I talk about Tchaikovsky and let's say there is no way I can prove this, but I would argue that if he was not a gay man growing up in a very homophobic Russia, his music probably would have a lot less emotion. And so when you listen to his music, he's communicating his pain through music. Yeah. And it's what we are interested in because we all experience pain. It's interesting when you're having those moments of pain in writing, sometimes going out into other disciplines, as you say, in music, when you get stuck and you're in it, sometimes you take yourself away from it. Maybe it's the unconscious mind takes over. Maybe it's a meditation practice where you can externalize the issues. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of interesting. So in this book, inadvertently, I ended up, and this is a complete accident. Like when I look at this book today, I'm like, this is interesting. It's a feature of any creative process. After you're done with creating something, you look at this and you as a creator is kind of somewhat surprised what you created. So I ended up combining a lot of different, like, even though the book started as a collection of the articles, it's not just a collection of, there, is, there, there are themes that go throughout the book and creativity, I would argue, one of the most important themes that you can see throughout the book. I found meditation is a very good source of mindfulness. And what meditation teaches you is to observe your own thoughts. A lot of times we suffer through self-talk and we're not even aware of this. A lot of times this self-talk is actually amplifies our pain because in reality, the pain should not last very long. The creative pain should not last very long, but it's the self-talk that amplifies the amount of it and the length of it. Now, meditation allows you to look at your self-talk and identify that. And by labeling and identifying it, you lessen it and reduce the duration. And that is actually incredibly important. Teach yourself to be mindful through meditation. And by the way, I look at meditation as something that basically helps me to be mindful. And uh, I would highly recommend it to anybody. And I say this, and it's slightly hypocritical because I, I meditated for a year and a half every single day. And then I fell off the wagon and now I meditate couple of days a week. My goal is to come back and meditate every day again. One of these mental exercises that you talk about in your book is negative visualization, how you go about imagining how things could go wrong so that you're less thrown off if and when they do. But I was sort of wondering if you find yourself bogged down imagining the negative or always focusing on the negatives or focusing on how things could go wrong. Yeah, such a good question. Okay, so if you're going to be constantly thinking about negative things, you're going to be such a miserable person to be around. So <laughs> that's not what we try to do. A couple of things. I'll give you a few examples, and there are slightly different ways of a negative visualization. I have three kids, and I understand that at some point they will be out of the house, and that when I drive them to school, like I have an eight-year-old daughter, I realize that I only have eight years of driving her to school. Or more importantly, I have a 16-year-old daughter and I only have two years of, you know, of driving her to school, which is 400-something days. So every time when I drive her to school, 
I'm a lot more present because I realize that's finite. So this type of negative visualization allows me to appreciate what I have so much more. It's almost like adds flavor to life. And that's one example. Another example is preparing yourself that things were not always going to be great. And when you're aware of that and those bad things happen, they don't hurt as much. So you need to find a balance that you don't dwell on these things all the time. But it's, it is important for me that like I run an investment firm and be, things are going great right now. And I prepare myself that there'll be times when things won't be great. And I prepare my clients for that. So right now we think I'm a genius. I prepare them that there'll be time. I actually remind them to remember this, that they think of me as a genius right now, because there will be time when I look like a complete idiot. So I would ask him to bottle up that feeling of me being a genius because they'll need to dig into that reservoir. But it's important that it's not something you should dwell on all the time, but you should remind yourself occasionally that things, like in the case of my kids, I need to remind myself that they won't stay young forever. And that makes me give them more attention and be more present. And at the same time, when I visualize the things, you know, like, in, like as an investor, things can go bad. When the things do go bad, I'm less surprised by that. I'm probably a little bit more prepared too. These are really the principles of stoicism, wonderful exactly. tools. Something else I wanted to ask about is another one of these, I guess, exercises or techniques that you use are half binary decisions where you sort of identify a bad habit and just decide that you don't do it anymore and sort of eliminate the choice from it or save the mental energy from making it a choice. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. Uh, yeah, this is like a superpower for me because once I used to smoke a long time ago and I tried to quit many times before. And every time I tried to quit smoking, what got me in was when somebody offered me a cigarette and I would say to myself, okay, just one cigarette. And then two weeks later, I'm smoking again. Then I had a crush on this girl. And this girl kind of inadvertently kind of implied that I would be more attractive to her if I didn't smoke. That was it. It was not even direct a comment or something. And okay, I decided I'm going to quit smoking. And I basically told myself, if I smoke even one cigarette, I'll start smoking again. So then it's basically became a decision that I'm the person who doesn't smoke and therefore having even one cigarette is not a choice. So if somebody offers me a cigarette, then I would say I don't smoke and then say it stops being a decision. And this is very important. And the irony of the story is that the girl broke up with me a week later. And this was almost 30 years ago and I still haven't smoked a single cigarette since. Now, when it applies to food, like I basically, for reasons that are specific to me, when I'm in Denver, I don't eat bread. I don't eat red meat. I don't eat pasta. I don't eat sugar. So when I am at somebody's birthday party or at my mother-in-law's and she makes this incredible shish kebab and she offers it to me, I tell her, I'm sorry, I don't eat red meat. And she says, but one time. And I said, you don't understand. It doesn't work this way. It's a now, if I eat it once, every single time I see red meat, it becomes a decision I have to make. And this is important. Every decision you make requires energy. It requires willpower. Now, if I make a half binary decision, if I don't do it, that requires very little energy. If every single time I have to make a decision, I'm going to eat this red meat or not, that requires a tremendous amount of energy. So like to save energy and just to stick and to actually to perpetuate my habits, 
some things that decide I don't do them. And when you do this, it just becomes a lot easier. So every instance that you've described using a half binary decision is sort of in the negative. You don't eat dessert. You don't eat bread. But I was if you tried or if it works in the positive as well to be like, I do wake up at five o'clock every morning or I don't know, something like that. Or if you've tried that and if you have, if there's sort of a difference between doing it in the negative and in the positive. This requires a slightly different framework. Okay, now I have to turn what's considered to be negative into positive. Okay, I have to convince myself to waking up five in the morning is something I love doing. So I have to reframe it. And I have to find a lot of positives around it. In other words, oh my God, I wake up at five o'clock in the morning. I get to drink coffee. There is all this quietness. I get to concentrate for two hours. Nobody is disturbing me. So I have to recondition myself to see positives in that. So it's a slightly different technique. I also found that with some things, I need extra motivation. So working out, I'll give, you that, I'll give you that as an example. I found that I have very, very little willpower to actually continuously work out every day. So my trick was I work out with a trainer and I've been doing it for more than four years now. So for twice a week, I have an appointment on Monday and Friday at eight o'clock. And there was a trainer waiting for me at my office. And for me, that was the only way I could stick to working out because I realized I have a lot of willpower to give things up, but I have a, a lot less willpower to actually stick to doing things that, you know, that which are like working out is painful. It's a, it requires a lot more willpower than I have. And I think that this kind of the negatives or doing without, not doing the things that we wish to do or having a kind of emotional what is your understanding? There's so many interpretations of Stoicism. Okay. So I look at Stoicism as this operating system that is very accessible, that helps us to enhance our life, it has positives in life, and diminish negatives in our life. I look at Stoicism as basically, like, so what happens to us when we are born, we are given this hardware and software. The software is kind of our operating system. And the operating system is fairly blank at first. And then our parents help us to write this operating system. And then our friends influence this operating system. Then life, things that happen to you, contribute to your operating system. And how you react to things is a kind of really driven by all these factors that were, kind of, that were somewhat random in the beginning. To me, Stoicism gives me this guide, the operating system, how to go through life and minimize pain in your life, negative emotions, and max, and which also helps you to maximize positive emotions. Throughout his life and career, Vitaly Katzenelson combines fields and studies that most of us imagine are unrelated or even contradictory. He projects the ideals of Stoic philosophy and the dynamism of classical music onto his life, his writing, and his work in value investing. Vitaly gives us a look at what Stoicism could look like in the modern day. How Stoicism, which teaches self-control, mental acuity, and mastery of the mind and body, can be applied everywhere. In something as small as deciding what to or not to eat, or as grand as choosing a job, a school, friends, or a partner. And now, back to the podcast. I thought it was so interesting that you addressed in your book, you call it a disease of always being right or something that you kind of dealt with in yourself. Many of us strive to always be right, but we lose out on other things. 
Yeah, there is a cost to that, right? When you are always right in a conversation, you must be a very unpleasant person to be around. And I struggle with that, right? Also, you have a tremendous ego. Also, a person who is always right never learns anything. And by also by us trying to be right, we end up hurting other people because when we win the argument, we lose that person. So we need to learn that we don't need to always be right. And sometimes it's okay, even if we feel we are right, kind of don't try to impart our rightness on others and to kind of agree to disagree. And the example I use in the book, which is a true story, I had this girlfriend uh, when I was in college and we were going to different universities and I was taking economics classes at the same time, microeconomics, I think. And we had this fatal debate that kind of broke our relationship, which was already going downhill anyway, but like about the topic of tariffs versus quotas on imports. Can you imagine like this is what kind of ruined my relationship because I felt I had it to be right. I look at this now and it's silly. It's a silly and idiotic. And so I think the, you know, the most important lesson here is that when you win, you lose. In other words, when you win, a lot of times you crush the other person and that victory is not really a victory after all. Yeah. I mean, also it's really important to, a lot of us also believe we know a lot of things. I did an interview recently and it, um, Actually, when you ask people about even very basic things, they think they know even how like a toilet works. But they say, oh yeah, I know how it works. But they don't, they can't explain it. So we have this kind of, the impression we have a superficial knowledge about the whole world, especially with the internet, but it's actually very good to break things down and to just pretend you're seeing something for the first time. I imagine with investing, it's like that. Absolutely. That is such a good point. In In the book, I have this chapter called Abracadabra. And I talk about four modes of communications. There's a three P modes. There's a preacher, prosecutor, and politician. So politician, I paint as negative, but they are not always negative. So I'll give you negative and positive side of each mode. When you think of politicians, if you think of it from a negative perspective, because basically those are spineless people a lot of times that are trying to get you to like them. So we assume they have no core beliefs and they tell us what we want to hear, even though they don't believe in it. So that's a negative connotation of that. The positive connotation is when you go on the first date and you're just trying to get a person to like you and you're looking for points of similarity or something you agree on. So when you go on the first date, you're on the politician mode. When you're prosecutor mode, obviously when you think of prosecutor, you think about courtroom, but also when you're trying to convince somebody of something that is very, very important, like trying to convince Putin not to have the war in Ukraine. I would like to send the best prosecutor there to change his mind. Obviously, it would be a waste of time. But you see what I mean? So there are times when you want to change somebody else's mind, and it's a positive thing. And then you have a preacher mode where preachers basically has this message, and he's just trying to communicate this message. And the preacher believes and tries to convey this message to others and turn them into believers. So it depends on your interpretation of religion and whatever. Now, let me give you another example. Steve Jobs, he was a preacher because he basically came up with an idea and then he tried to convince employees that they actually can do this. So that's him in a preacher mode. Okay. So those three Ps are very important modes, but this is a very important but. If you spend all your time in these modes, you will learn very little because all of them are kind of outward looking modes. You're trying to convince others and you don't learn very much when you're in those modes. Now, 
I would argue that most of us need to spend a good chunk of our time in a scientist mode. If you're in a scientist mode, then you're doing what Seneca basically said, you know, time discovers truth. So in the scientist mode, everything you look at is a hypothesis. And then all you're trying to do is you're just trying to figure out if your hypothesis is right or wrong. And therefore, in the debate, you're trying to understand the other person's side, not necessarily be in a prosecutor mode and to convince the person to change his or her mind. We want to be very careful that ideas don't become our identity because once they do, we can't change it. In fact, I would argue we have to be very mindful and evaluate our identity because a lot of times our identity is formed through completely random experiences. And I'll give an example. Like, I really don't want to step into politics. But a lot of times when you think about gay rights, abortion, all these issues, a lot of times we didn't think through those issues. A lot of times they were given to us through our parents, through our brain, or a lot of times the debates. Like you debated this with somebody and through random reason you chose a position. And then the more you defended that position, the more it became you basically inherited that view through the debate. And you didn't even think about it, but basically that became part of your identity. So we have to be very careful that ideas don't become our identity. So anyways, that's a very long answer to a very good question. So I wanted to ask about how you're teaching this philosophy to your kids, like the finding the good and being wrong. Like specifically in Soul on the Game, you talk about when your son got his first speeding ticket and how you were proud of him for looking for the story in that scenario. <laughs> yeah, it's, let me tell you how I teach my kids everything. I just, we talk about all these things. And I try to use myself as an example because I aspire to be all the things I wrote in the book and I don't always succeed at them all the time. And that's important because I'm human. I'm not a computer. And I'm learning, I'm trying to improve. And my kids and I talk about these things all the time. And I try to apply these lessons. Whatever they have a dilemma, I try to apply these lessons to them. I'll give you one example. My daughter, Hannah, who's, who is 16, she started teaching chess to eight-year-old kids. And before her first lesson, I asked her, did you prepare for this? She's like, yeah, you know, I'll just... I'll just start doing it. Like, and I realized, I said, Hannah, you understand, right? You need to have soul in a game. Here's why. Because somebody has entrusted you, their child. And if this girl will love or hate chess, completely depends on you. So the impact you have on this girl is incredible. Like the impact you have on your life is incredible. Because if you do a good job, if you have soul in a game, if you prepare the curriculum, if you're present at the lesson, mentally present, then this girl may fall in love with chess and you have no idea how you impact it where she's going to be 30 years from now, 20 years from now. So just having this kind of, this little lesson and explaining and then going through the soul in the game concept had a huge impact on her. And also my son, Jonah, I think he was 18 or 19 years old and he got his first speeding ticket. It was $250, which is a huge amount of money, especially considering that we have a rule. If he gets a speeding ticket, he's paying for it, not me. And I remember he got this ticket and he was very upset. And I said, what are you upset about? He's like, you did. it's not about the money. That's fine. But you know, I got this ticket and I thought it was going to be an interesting story. And it was, there was no story in it. I just got a ticket. There was absolutely no story in the ticket. 
there's nothing to tell. And I kind of appreciated that because that's how you want to go through life. A lot of times you're going to have this bad things happen to you, or at least what appear to be bad. But if you look at it as an observer and as a writer, and you look at these negative things as a story, suddenly you reframe it and they don't seem to be as bad. And that's something I really want to instill in my kids. But also just as a parent overall, I think as a parent, you just want to talk to your kids and kind of discuss things. And I think that's probably one of the most important things I can do as a parent. Yeah, it sounds also like Jonah is a bit of a writer in him as well. Just tell us a little bit about that relationship that's portrayed in the book. I think I am doing what my father did. I just basically, I'm just talking to your kids, discussing things. And I think actually, I think being vulnerable, which in the sense that not trying to appear this Marvel character who is always right is very, very important. But my father is kind of true Renaissance man. He has a PhD in electrical engineering. Like he would know a lot about science, but at the same time, he's this incredible artist who paints incredible paintings, but a lot more than that. He understood, he understood art, its history, etc. So whenever we traveled as a family, we would always go to art museum every single time. And my father would walk with us through art museum and he would, and we would talk about the paintings. And I remember there was one time we were in the Netherlands and we were, I think, Reich Museum or something. And we were looking at Rembrandt and there was a painting of old man. And I looked at it and it did nothing for me. And I told him this and he said, and I remember how he changed how I looked at the painting. He said, well, look at this man's hands and look at his eyes, you know, and look how much pain he went through his life. And suddenly I was looking at the person and I've seen a lot more than a painting. I saw a human being who had all these different experiences. And it made me, like now when I look at portraits of Rembrandt or painters like that, I see, I see kind of a glimpse at history. I, I see an opportunity to look at a person and kind of think about the person's life. In fact, like now when I go to Europe, actually anywhere, I'll sit and just watch people and try to think about them. And it's interesting because that people watching or that deep noticing is another kind of meditation of bringing yourself outside of yourself, writing the same thing, bringing yourself, maybe writing about your own life, but bringing yourself into the experience of others. Absolutely. I believe it's all related. And it seems like all your writing is, I think that you also are an educator and telling us what you know about this school of life. So how do you feel we can improve our education models to incorporate some of these themes that you discuss? Creativity, critical thinking, humanistic principles, respect for the natural world. That is a, such a big question. I think in general, our education system is somewhat broken because a lot of it, like observing my kids, it's just, I think school should teach you how to think and they should teach you how to learn. Where I see my son, I was taking history classes and the test was just memorization. And I was thinking, well, what's the value of this? Because he would just forget what he just memorized two days later. So as a society, I think the reason I wrote this book, it's kind of very interesting. I'm this capitalist kind of who was born in Russia, kind of made in America kind of thing. So there is a lot of capitalism in me. But at the same time, this book is probably the most altruistic thing ever done. But I really wanted to succeed because this book is my way to try to help society for society to change. And I'll tell you, I cannot tell you how many emails I get from readers who are saying that 
they took the kids to art museums. They are, there was a guy who said his son is 11th grade and he realizes, just like Hannah, he realizes he only has two years left with his, with his son and he just went on a camping trip for a week. That's all I can ask for. So as a society, how can society change? I think I try to kind of give my examples of what I do to become a better person, to raise better kids, to appreciate life a little bit more. But I think it's just a lot of little lessons that I try to kind of through the book that I try to communicate, you know, how to improve the world a little bit. I have to say on my first reading, when I received a soul in the game, I thought it was like a, a urging not to lose your soul in the game, you know, particularly about investing. But it's also, it's not about a not, it's about how to engage more, isn't it? I love, actually, I, actually, I didn't even think about it this way, how not to lose and how to have, which is kind of both. That's actually kind of, not, not to lose. It's a very interesting concept. I have this concept, which is very dear to me, and I probably, very few people will care about it. In the art, like I found that when I write something, it's very dear to me. A lot of times nobody cares about this. But the concept of art and craft, that concept is basically how not to lose. Meaning if you do something even very creative for a long period of time, it loses the art element of it, it just becomes a craft because repetition turns it into a craft. And you need to always add a little bit of art into anything you do not to you know because otherwise it's gonna if it's all craft then it's for most of us if it's a creative activity you won't have soul in a game anymore so i just kind of like that you kind of broken up soul in a game from how not to lose but also how to gain i remember this story a man came to a monk and he said you know i have everything but i feel dead inside something there's no color there's no life there's no nothing you know and the monk says well you have to have to climb this mountain and there's an incredible rose there potent scent and fragrance, it will rejuvenate your life. And he climbs the mountain and there's so much, I have to say, it's a very difficult mountain. It's full of unpleasant things. And he, he finally, it's kind of like the metaphor of our struggle of what we're always competing against ourselves and others. He gets to the top after passing through all this and, you know, he plucks the rose, but by that time he has lost his sense of smell after going through all of this. So it is a little bit like that. We have to make sure when we're climbing the mountain of success that we don't lose this, like the soul in the game. We don't lose our ability to appreciate beauty. Oh, absolutely. No, absolutely. I think that is a, such a good point. That's a great, I like that. I love the story. Thank you for that. Thank you, Vitaly Katzenelsen, for sharing your truth, for your thoughtful writings that help us navigate today's ever-changing landscape and find a more grounded path to life's challenges and all these tools that you give to help us have a deeper understanding of the human condition to create positive futures. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Me and Marie, I really want to thank you. You guys are phenomenal. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Maureen Knoll with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Maureen Knoll. Digital Media Coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hagenbarth. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or to submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.